Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, so instead of going to Genesis 12 tonight, which is where we're going to go, I want to rewind just a little bit and go back to a Genesis 11, and we're going to start in verse 31, and we're going to get through verse or chapter 12 tonight. Um, and again, we to as a reminder, we have come almost 2,000 years through uh, through to Noah, and, and we and and now we're at Abraham. So we have moved forward amazingly fast in 11 chapters. So let's do 2,000 years of human history. Chapters 1 and 2 were the creation. Chapters 3 and 4, humans fall away and, and screw up uh, that righteous relationship with God because they want to go after themselves and they're deceived. In Genesis 5, we start to see genealogies, which is where the name Genesis comes from. It's a genealogy or a, a beginning. Um, and we start looking for Messiah. We see buried into this, this promise that came with the curse for Eve with that from, from woman would come a Messiah or someone that would stop this curse of death that we have in our life. Genesis 6, you see some evil angels that try to corrupt God's plan for a redeemer and they start intermarrying with all the women of the earth. Um, and God puts a stop to that, not only... Um, locking them up in some way, shape, or form. But in Genesis 7 through 9, God floods the whole earth, starts fresh with one of the only people that hasn't been corrupted by this, which is Noah and his family. They get off the ark. They make an altar, which is good. They put God first in all that they do. And then they go about sinning, just like the people before them on the ark did. Genesis 10 and 11, we see a, a table of nations. Uh, God commands humans and Noah's family to spread out and populate the earth. Humans do the exact opposite. They start to cluster in uh, Ur or Babylon, and they start to try to build a giant tower uh, to look towards the heavens and to do other things. And God just says, I'm going to spread you out. But instead of flooding the earth, he creates language groups, and everybody just starts moving towards different areas. Um, for one of those families, God actually tells them where to go. So we don't have any record of him telling one family to go to China and another to go to Africa. It just says that they spread out according to their language and their nation. Um, and then you see at the end of Genesis 11 in verse 31, we start to see that uh, this one family that God directs is not quite following what God says again. And in fact, in Genesis, we see this as a pattern with human beings. God tells us to do one thing we do the opposite, and it just kind of works like that. So Genesis 11:31, And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Last week, we just kind of skipped over this a little bit because it's really more relevant to today's story. But there's a problem here. They were supposed to go to the land of Canaan, 
but they didn't. They actually stop in Haran, and those are two very different places. Um, and we'll get into that. And um, in other words, Terah's not doing what he was supposed to do, which is get to Canaan. So if you go from Ur of the Chaldeans, we've excavated that. We know right where it is. Luckily, the Tigris and Euphrates dump silt. So land has extended over the last 4,000 years. And the city of Babylon is actually further to the south. But Ur of the Chaldeans is a 100 miles or so inland. And it's really easy to excavate because it's all desert and dry. So a lot of it's been really well preserved. And we actually know a lot about Ur. So tonight we're going to learn about Ur. Then they stop in Haran, which is in the southern, southeastern part of Turkey. We're going to learn about Haran and why they might have stopped there. And then they actually do make their way to Canaan through chapter 12. So we're going to go to Canaan too. And I think we might even get to Egypt before we're done with tonight. So we're going to do a tour of the Middle East. And unlike most nights, these cities actually mean something to the story. So we're going to take some time with them. And I got to totally geek out on researching ancient Ur and Haran and all these different places. So you get to go to do stuff like that too. Um, so then if you flip to chapter 12, uh, we see the first word is now, uh, which is again where the chapter break wasn't in a good place where I started with Genesis 1:31, because now implies that this is kind of a movement from what just happened. Um, shadow. Lay down. Good boy. We talked about this, remember? Good boy. Uh, we see the first of three conversations that God's going to have with Abraham before Abraham kind of figures it out. And in the first conversation, he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, um, Get out of your, or I'm sorry, now the Lord had said to Abram, that's going to be important, Get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is the first conversation, and God, as usual, packs a lot into it. There's three requirements, five promises, one imperative, and one future prophecy, all in this first piece. As we get into Genesis, we will speed up, but chapter 12 is not the place to do it. This is the beginning of all of it. In fact, the book of Matthew, when he's telling the story that leads people to Christ and he's talking to the Hebrews, his genealogy only goes back to this guy named Abram. And I want to call him Abraham, but I can't do that yet because he's not Abraham yet. He's still Abram. But this is, Matthew doesn't even go back to Adam. He goes back to Abram. So for the Jewish people, this is almost like the beginning of the Bible in chapter 12. This is where it all started. It started with this promise this promise of a blessing. It's also in poetic form, which to me says this was meant to be memorized. So it's what Abram would have taught his kids and their kids and their kids. It's what all the little Jewish kids would have learned. And then for whatever you do for commencement or commemoration or what do they call it? Convocation? Sure. Okay. Confirmation. That, that's what the little Jewish kids would have said at their bar mitzvah and, and whatnot to show that they knew some of these passages. Go to the beginning, it says, had said to. Previously, when you're in, they're in the city of Ur, we don't know what had said to meant, but it means, that, it means that God's not saying this to Abram now. It means that he had said it to him. In other words, by stopping in Haran, something was not right. In other words, they were told to go to Haran, but they uh, told to go to Canaan, but they stopped in Haran. Uh, we don't know when God had said this to Abraham, but we know that uh, right off that there was some hesitation here. 
We also know, and we'll see later with things, that Abram's 75 years old living in Haran. And he probably left Ur when he was in his 30s or 40s. Um, so there's been, it's not a small delay in Haran. They'd made camp there, and that's where they were going to stay. And for good reason, it's beautiful territory. Um, the three requirements. Uh, if you look at that passage, it says to get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house. One, two, three. Leave, leave your family, and leave your father's house. And these three requirements are easy to read past, but they're actually, I think they're really tough. These are steps of faith that would have been extremely difficult for any 75-year-old guy. And leaving your father's house or leaving the house of Terah would have been really tough um, because it means leaving what you know and leaving what's safe. And that kind of thing, when you take a step of faith and you're doing leaving for a country, you don't know what it is, um, that it's actually an incredibly tough thing to do. And to think of Abram as a man of faith, obviously he's got a way to go. And frankly, he would have grown up in the luxury of Ur. And and Ur was a beautiful place. In the excavations, they've even found indoor bathtubs in Ur. Like this is a place that would have been a nice, easy place to live. So by partially leaving and getting to the land of Terah, they're not quite where they need to be yet. The other thing we know about Canaan at this point in history is it's not the land of milk and honey yet. It's actually the land of the Canaanites. And they were horribly wicked people. So one of the things for Abram is to, he's going, but he's going with his father. And the second part of this is he's supposed to leave his father's house and leave that family that's there. They would have had servants. We know that they were shepherds or herds people, so they would have had herds. So all of this means not only just leaving for a country you've never been to before and that isn't as developed as Ur, it also means leaving the safety of your family and it means leaving the wealth of that family, the comfort that would have came with it. Joshua 24.2 uh, also points out that he would be leaving idolatrous things. So Abram would have been an idol worshiper at this point in history. Before God talked to him, he would have grown up for decades in Ur of the Chaldeans where most of them had fallen away. So it's likely to think that they would have been serving other gods. In fact, Joshua 24.2 says that they were. And Joshua said to the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of, of the flood in old times. Even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, they served other gods. So what were those other gods is the next question. The good news is because of archaeology, we know a lot about Ur and the Chaldeans and what kind of gods they worshipped. And you can see where God would pull people out of that and say, I want my remnant, no matter what the rest of the world is doing, I got to pull my people out and give them their direction on my own. So Ur and Haran, and here's what's familiar. When it says leave your country, when you go from Ur to Haran, it's like going from the Twin Cities to Duluth. You're not actually leaving the state of Minnesota. You're moving from one city to the other. Ur would have been the largest city in that country at the time, and Haran would have been the second largest city. So they really didn't leave the country, and they didn't obey God when they did that. The chief gods of Ur, of the Chaldean, were actually moon gods, and this is where this stuff gets really cool. Um, the Ziggurat Tower of Ur was um, archaeologically still there. We know where it was. We know the foundations of it were huge, and it was this tower that was meant to look at the heavens because they studied astrology and they made predictions, and a lot of the relationship came around moon and stars and reading the, the skies. 
there were a male and a female god that would have been the two gods of Ur. The female god is Nana, and the male god was called Sin. And so they had, uh, Sin was a protector of shepherds. He was also considered a master gardener and the creator of great gardens. Um, and he worked at night. And the primary tool of Sin's uh, ability to recreate things was to work through death. So death wasn't a curse in their religion. It was actually the source of life in their religion. So the Chaldeans worshipped things that would die and become resurrected or things that would shake their skin. Katie, can you manage your dog, please? And this is where it gets even crazy. One of the archaeological findings in 1922 is from Sir Leonard Woolley. Uh, it's the largest find they've had, and it was a giant pit filled with bodies. It's called the Great Death Pit. So we know that the Chaldeans would kill things to see if they would come back to life. So they were playing with death almost like a science to see what would be recreated. They had entire temples filled with snakes uh, as snakes would shed their skins, and that was believed to be a form of death, and then they would come out new and better and bigger in their new skins. Their symbol, and this is where it gets even crazier, for the male god Sin, the primary temple or idol that you would build for Sin is a bull, a giant golden calf, which is going to become relevant later in the Old Testament. The idols that they had were key. They actually believed that the spirits or the, the, the angels would come and inhabit the idols. So they had massive ornate ceremonies that we found on their tablets where they would clean the lips and they would take coal and try to burn things off the lips to clean them and make them perfect so that you could do this. Again, that becomes relevant later in the Old Testament. Even better, which becomes relevant in 700 AD, the symbol of Urian worship was a crescent moon that they would put over the tops of their temples. They worshiped the moon. Um, so they would worship the moon. They would worship things that represented and symbolized death coming back to life, that life was a grand cycle that would go around, and that you should. they had ceremonies that had to do with the seasons, and they became the, the parent religion of all pagan religions. Um, in fact, I'll demonstrate that. I'll talk a little bit more about Nana or Inanna, which was the female god. Uh, but one more thing about Sin. Sin was called by the Urians. He was called the father of all gods, the chief of all gods, and the creator of all things. So he actually took on titles that would have been titles that look a lot like what we see um, in, Juda in Judaic tradition, which we say about Yahweh. There was also a strong belief in demons, and most of their religion was to try to keep demons out of their city. So they would have these things where there were good demons and there were bad demons. So, but they knew that demons were there to destroy humans. This make it a little creepy. Like a lot of this stuff is creepy, so you can't stop reading it. Um, <laughs> the moon goddess, Anana, this gets even weirder, she was revered as the goddess of sex and war. For some reason, those two things go together. She was so popular that the worship of Anana actually, if you find evidence of it, all across Mesopotamia, if you dig to this era of history, you find that worship of Inanna was everywhere. In fact, for some reason, at one point, the name of Inanna changed for all these different people groups, but the worship and the ceremonies stayed the same. So for the Akkadians and the Assyrians, she was called Ishtar. For the Phoenicians, she was called Astarte. For the Hurrians and the Hittites, she was called Soska. For the Canaanites, she was called Asheroth. For the uh, Greeks, 
She was called Aphrodite and Diana. She split into two different goddesses. The Egyptians called her... Isis? Isis. And the Romans called her Venus. I won't help you out with that. And the Americans called her pornography. So (laughs) it was believed that nothing was prohibited with Inanna, where sin had some rules to it. Inanna, there were no rules. You'd go to Inanna worship and there were no limitations. Nobody should tell you what to do social constraints, physical restraints should be crossed so that you get into a metaphysical state where you get into spiritual ecstasy and all these sorts of things. So these places were essentially worship of the body and worship of conflict in those kinds of ways. So Inanna went everywhere, but for some reason at a particular point in history, her name changed. The Bible says that's because language is formed, but just because language is formed didn't mean that people stopped worshiping what they wanted to worship. So these religions stay in place, this is crazy, until roughly 400 AD. So these religions I just mentioned were well established when Jesus came to the earth. They're the same religions that the Jewish people were fighting against through all of biblical history. And they really haven't changed. Even today, they're still around. Um, By the way, the only thing to supplant these religions in 400 AD was the spread of Christianity. Christianity essentially wiped these religions out in the Middle East. Um, and, the, and, then, and then 300 years later, Islam actually started killing Christians and Islam became the primary religion in the Middle East. The Middle East has only really had three major religions, which is an interesting kind of thing when you look around the world. These religions are still around today. They haven't gone away. There's still worship of Diana, Aphrodite, Aradia. Uh, there's Herodias cults, sacred mystery groups, all female covens. That's the other thing with most of these religions. They were all female leadership, and in the Judaish tradition, you see all male leadership. So there's a difference in the genders when it comes to leadership. Uh, Wicca today admittedly says they go right back to these religions and pull their traditions, their spells, their study of the stars, their study of nature, and it all comes straight from those kinds of things. They venerate primarily two gods, a horned male god and a mother goddess female god that looks exactly like Babylonian worship. There really isn't a lot of change. Uh, I looked up the Minnesota Church of, uh, of uh, there's different names for this, by the way, um, but they're essentially pagan worship that's coming back into style. And they're trendy, and for most people that do it, it's playful and fun. They'll even say it on their website. We're the only religion where we're just fun and we're fancy free and that sort of thing. And then you have you know, these deeper central groups and you gotta do certain things to get to be on the insiders club and, and all that sort of thing. What's important for us to understand is not fascination with these religions, which is easy because they're weird and kooky and you can kind of get addicted to looking them up, but to realize at some level that the worship here is of human beings, it's not of God. And that all of this kind of comes around that sort of thing. So it's important to understand what Abram is getting away from uh, was some of this nastiness that was going on in these different places. At the time of Abraham, it's believed that most of these religions went from playful and fun to sacrificing human beings. The Canaanites, where Abram was asked to go, were the first to do it. They'd perfected human sacrifice. And again, if you want to have spirit energies and blah, 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 it's a logical conclusion that if you kill things, you can suck spirit life energy out of them. So sacrifice of animals, sacrifice of humans goes there. And Judeo's tradition is in contrast, they do animal sacrifice, but it's not because they think they're getting life from the animal. They're actually killing the animal. And that's a whole different kind of like 
theological understanding of what they're doing and why they're doing it. It does explain why Moses got so angry with the bull statue, right? Is because they're going right back to these religions that they're trying to get the Jewish people away from. Um, and God is setting up a plan. I also think it was worth going down that path a little bit because it starts to show that this time God, instead of flooding the earth, he's going to find one family and say, I just want you and I to have a relationship. And I don't want, I want you to stand amongst all the nations and be amazingly blessed so they can see that I'm blessing you and I'm not blessing this other nonsense that they're doing. And that's kind of what God starts to do. This time God then doesn't start over. He starts to bless the earth by putting a light in it. And he has, again, given people a choice. And we're going to see later in in, when we look at the law that anyone could join the Jewish people. And it was this open door kind of church-like space where if you wanted to live and serve Yahweh, you could. You could walk right in and be Jewish. Um, And today Jewish is more of an ethnicity, but back then you couldn't do it. So he had to leave his country, which meant leaving all this garbage. Leave your family, who were idol worshipers, and leave your father. So there's something to do with Terah where Terah actually is working with Abram to get out of Ur, um, but not moving on somewhere else. So get out of your old life, step in something new. God wants to bless something new. The other thing is we know that Nimrod, after the Tower of Babel, went to start Nineveh and would have been going the same direction. So it could be that Terah took his family with Nimrod's crew and went north to found another civilization up there. So Haran then is in southeast Turkey. If you Google satellite map it, you see this giant green region right in the middle of southeast Turkey, and that's where Haran is. That's been excavated too. Haran's patron saint was Inanna, the moon goddess, so they would not have left that spiritual environment. It's an area of contention. Uh, Some people think that uh, the Bible's wrong here, that they actually messed this up. That That the Bible says Abram's from Ur, but he's not from Ur because they found evidence of evidence and connections where you can make the claim he's actually from Haran. Um, but if you read the passage, it doesn't say that he's from Haran or Ur. It says he's actually kind of from both. He went from Ur and then he lived in Haran for decades. So he would have actually been from both cities. So it's not necessarily, if you read the Bible at face value, it's, I read through those criticisms and I'm like, I don't think the Bible's making the claim that Abram didn't spend time in Haran. It's actually saying that he did. Um, so anyways, moving on. Get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to that land I will show you. Verse two, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you and then all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's five promises here. God says, I will five times, which means God will be the agent of changing these things. He's gonna show him. He's gonna make him a nation. He's gonna bless him by giving him reputation and then he's gonna bless those who bless him And then he's going to do some cursing for those who curse. All of these are contingent on Abram doing these three things. Get out of your country, leave your family, leave your father. One imperative, and all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is actually a command in the Hebrew. Uh, It doesn't say that they just shall be blessed distantly. It's more like, and in all the families of the earth, I want you to bless them. So it's more of an imperative or a command in the Hebrew. One prophecy that God makes, I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing to all of the nations of the earth. At this point, Abram hasn't actually really, arguably, he was never a blessing to all the nations of the earth. It will be his descendants that become that blessing to all the earth. So 
so thus that's prophetic because the whole purpose of this is to bless others. Jesus says the church will finish this out uh, just like Abraham and the Jewish people will. So when you listen to what Jesus says, he calls this a prophecy too, that that actually hasn't been done yet. The last thing is I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Even today there's this odd pattern of those that bless Israel and ally with Israel tend to do fairly well. And countries that don't bless Israel don't, but that's just my own observation. I'm sure there's exceptions to that rule somewhere, but generally speaking, that's held fairly true. People who help Israel out actually tend to do pretty well, and it's hard to make a direct connection between that other than what the Bible says. Verse 4, so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. No, Lot shouldn't be going with you. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. That's where we get that age. Um, in chapter 11, 26 and 32, we see that Haran lives 145 years with Abram. So they moved after their marriage. So there would have been about 40 to 50 years in Haran. Um, but he's still not obeying, which is a problem. Nor does he know where he's going yet. He just says, get out of your country. So to get out of Haran, the only direction to go, because you're in the Fertile Crescent, which is like a moon-shaped part of the world, you can either go to the mountains of Turkey, which that's a tough journey with sheep. You could go to the deserts of Arabia, also not good with sheep. You can go back to Ur and follow the Tigris and Euphrates back to Ur. Or you can take a short little trip over some hills and come right down into Canaan along the, the coast of the Mediterranean. So when they leave the country, the only real direct path you can take sheep is to go, to, to go in that direction. In Hebrews 11.8, it says, by faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. He just knew that he was going and he was leaving, but he didn't really know what was going to be in Canaan. Uh, and that's at least what Hebrews says too. He's still figuring out how to worship God. He would have grown up in this other kind of environment, but he does know and what God gives him. And I think this is really encouraging for us. He leaves, which is one third of what he's supposed to do is that he leaves and he actually takes a step. And at this point, it's that first thing that it takes to follow God. And I think it's still true today. The first thing it takes to follow God, when we talk to somebody that's new in the faith, the first thing you have to do is say yes and just make a decision and follow God and take the first step. Not knowing where you're going or what's in store. In fact, most people that accept Christ have no idea what that means for the rest of their life. And it's kind of beautiful because you're putting your trust in God. And it's the thing that in Hebrews if, that Abraham actually gets credit for, is he actually took the step. They don't point out, which I think is really kind, that he shouldn't have taken a lot with him. And he should have left probably 40 to 50 years earlier and left his father when he should have. So he delayed in doing it. He did that. But God's still faithful. And God's still, even though the timing was more Abram's timing than God's timing, God's still going to bless him. And I think that's pretty amazing. So then I asked, and I'm going to take another kind of little detour. Why do this? Why would God, and you have to ask this, a thinking person says, why work with Abram? Why does the God of the universe want to have Abram and his family on this planet? Why does this matter so much? Why didn't he go straight to Jesus Christ and just have Jesus show up in 2000 BC and give his, you know, do his thing and rise from the dead? Why not just go straight to Jesus? The Bible tells us why, but you got to bounce around a little bit. Reason number one, God wants to show the entire planet that he can bless and provide a better way to live. So by having a nation, having Israel exist, 
Isaiah 49.6 says, It's not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So God actually speaks and says, this is my purpose in Israel. It's not enough to just be there and be countries. I actually want you to bless other nations and other countries. So it's an obligation that Israel has to serve. And I think it's really cool whenever I read stories about Nobel Prize winners coming out of Israel, because we've had a few pop up since the 1948. Um, and what they're doing is they're giving their science away to the rest of the world. So Israel leads the world in how to grow things in a desert, which makes sense, right? And they're handing that information away to anybody for free, which is not something the United States has ever done. We like to make people pay when we give them things. But Israel being really faithful to this idea that their role is to bless the nations and their university system is built to do that. And that's just speaking today. Reason number two, we find in Romans 3, verse 1 and 2. What advantage then has a Jew? Or what profit is there in circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. In other words, reason number two to have Israel is that God wanted his word to be maintained. And when he pulls Abram out, he actually pulls Abram out and they would have had to have all the scrolls from Seth's family. So the scrolls that Adam gave to Noah, gave to Seth, gave to Abraham, there's only four generations there. So this is at the time when when God is watching the last of his remnant start to follow idols. And he says, "Uh, I need somebody to make sure that Genesis sticks around so that we can study it at Dicker's house on Sunday nights to 4,000 years in the future. So that's why. Number, reason number two is the word of God can't get lost and God's not going to let that happen. So he has to intervene here. And as we go through the rest of this chapter in chapter 13 and 14, he's going to keep intervening because Abram really doesn't have a choice. He's, he's been called and God's going to make sure that those scrolls stay intact. Reason number three, and I think this one's the coolest reason, He's already made a prophecy that out of Eve, a savior would come and that that savior has to kind of be coming from a certain group of people. He's made a promise. Um, so the heart of the gospel is here too. The reason he picks Abram in this path is, I, I looked at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose of the Jewish people is that the Christ was going to come from them. The Messiah would come out of that line. Um, and God's going to keep his promise despite, despite the disobedience of humans. So we get to verse 5. Then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. So Abram's brought all his wealth with him. They, they must have been very wealthy people because there's all this stuff that has to get gathered. He's a man of needs. He's following a trade route. Faith here is not a claim or a bumper sticker. It's not just saying God exists. Even the demons agree God exists. Atheism really hadn't hit the planet at this point. Faith in this sense is not whether or not God exists, which is what I think in America we've turned faith into. That's not the question. Faith is, will you obey God and move when he tells you to move? Will you do what he says to do and just do it the way he says to do it? And in this case, Abram's kind of doing what God told him to do. But so God's not going to quite move forward with Abram until he fixes this stuff. For now, uh, his nephew is throwing in his lot with Abram. 
Catherine smiled first on that one. Lot could have been left in Haran with all the possessions. He could have said, Lot, it's all yours. You get it all. God's calling me and Sarah to take off. You can be blessed. You can keep the herds. You can keep the stuff. I'm going to trust the Lord's going to do what he's going to do. But quite frankly, Abram's a young believer. Even at age 75, he's still pretty new in his faith. And he's not quite ready to trust that with God, so he brings his nephew along. Um, It's not going to pan out. We'll see that in a little bit. Note for now, Abram does choose to follow God. And he brings his baggage with him. And we do that too. We accept Christ, and then we bring all our baggage with us. We bring all the stuff from the world that we're trying to get away from, and we take little pieces of it because we don't want to give it up. So we take those pieces, and those are the things that later on are going to corrupt our lives, and they're going to come back to it. I remember when I first got saved, I was actually convinced I needed to throw away all of my rock music. But then over the next five, ten years, I started recollecting all my favorite albums. And the next thing I knew, half of what I listened to was the garbage again. And then suddenly I had to go through another thing and get convicted. And the Lord really didn't bless my musical life until I got rid of that stuff and just got it out of my life. Verse 6, Abram passes through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. Wow, that's an odd reference. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Okay, we know the Canaanites were masters of corrupt religious worship. I waited till now to get into this. They had a different patron god. Their patron god was not Sin or Nana. It was Reseph, the god of plague and burning plague. Another way to interpret Reseph is a god of fire, uh, to burn someone or to, to fry them. They were developing human sacrifice and worship. And the more they could burn them, the more they could see the spirit of the body go up out of them. We call that smoke, right? When moisture leaves the body, it's a different colored smoke than when you just burn wood. Um, But they would do it, and they're mentioned all over the place. We see reference of Canaanite gods in the the Ebla tablets uh, over 11 times in Egyptian texts. Uh, And the idea of this Canaanite warlords being just vicious, brutal people They also developed the worship of Moloch. um, And Moloch essentially was a place you could take your baby if you didn't want your baby. There were statues that they would make and they found these statues where they were iron, cast iron, and they would burn the statues to a heating thing and you'd put your baby in the hands of Moloch, which were burning iron hands, and it would very quickly and mercifully kill the baby. So this worship, by some archeologist records, the Canaanites were killing thousands of babies a year in sacrifice to Moloch and doing this sort of thing. So did Abraham leave, left his old world and he's going out of the frying pan and right into the fire, kind of almost literally, and that's not even funny. The terebinth trees of Mora would have been where Asheroth worship would have taken. I actually, and I won't normally do this, but I brought pictures, but before I hand this around so you can see it, hi Hannah, I wanted to just show you some of these pictures and I'm gonna go PG now, I won't mention much stuff. Um, but usually they'd find groves of trees. And when he says goes into Cana, he would have came into this Jezreel Valley and it's beautiful. And that's why I want to pass this around. When you walk into this valley, you can see for miles and miles and miles. And when you get this, notice that there's entire villages in this picture and you get a sense of how much it would have taken days to walk across this valley, but you can see everything. It's beautiful. And there's some things about this valley that I'll show you, but the top picture on here is the Hill of Mora. We know exactly where that is. It hasn't moved. It's still called Mora. Um, So we're actually getting into stuff now that we can look up and we can find. And you could see when you see the photo why this would have been a place of worship for the Canaanite people. Because you have all this flat, beautiful grazing farmland 
and then right in the middle of it, you have like this big hill with trees on it. Uh, the terebinth trees, we don't know what a terebinth tree is. Pass that around. Um, but the Israelites, and I think this is great, that's now a national park reserve. And you can see that they've planted trees all over it again so that it has trees on it. And they've planted primarily cedar, um, sycamore, um, oak, um, and uh, um, those big tall, I, I think those are cedars or whatever, but they have them all over the hill. And it's a park reserve. You can go for hikes. You can walk around Nora. And you can see where it's a beautiful place. Um, and that they would have had all the the worship that's going on there. And I think that's pretty cool that that's right where Abram goes. So he gets the call from God and he goes right into the middle of Canaanite territory. And the first thing he does is he sets up an altar right in the middle of their worship territory. And it's hard to miss where that would be in that area. Um, I don't think the Canaanites would have been thrilled with that, but because they were pagan, they were okay with other gods. So they didn't necessarily think that if this is Abram's God, he can worship his God. And Abraham could show and would have shown for all his time in Canaan, he would have lived his life with people there. And um, they would have seen what kind of guy he was and that he was honest and he would have built his uh, wealth there. So the point being the Terbeth trees of Mora are a known spot. We know exactly where that was. And you can take a look at it for yourself when this comes around and it's kind of cool. It's a really symbolic place. And I think this is cool as Christians that there's some real that God takes this place of pagan worship and turns it into something beautiful. Listen to this, Genesis 35, two, Jacob said to his household and all that were with him, put away your foreign gods that are among you, purify yourself, change your garments, let us arise and go up uh, to Bethel and I'll make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress. Bethel is south of this valley and it's as has been with me in in the way that I've gone, Genesis 35. Verse four, so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. He went up to that mountain and he buried all the crap and put it in the, and and buried it like it was dead, okay? Moses goes back to this same hill, right? It's right in the middle of Israel. Deuteronomy 11, and you can start at 26 if you're doing your own Bible study later, but I'm gonna start in verse 29. Now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put a blessing on Mount Gerizim and a curse on Mount Ebal. They're not on the other side of the Jordan towards the setting sun in the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain opposite Gilgal beside the terebinth trees of Morah. For you will cross over the Jordan and go into it and possess the land and it'll be that the Lord is giving it to you and you will possess it and dwell in it and you shall be careful to observe all the statues and judgments which I set for you today. In other words, when the Israelites came back with Moses, they'd have been going right for this hill and this would have been the first place they would have conquered. Joshua 24, uh, and this is in uh, also in Judges 9. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, he will serve and his voice he will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made it for them a statue and an ordinance in Shechem. And then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. He took a large stone and he set it up there under the oak that was in the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness to us for it's heard all the words of the Lord, which he has spoke to us. And it shall be therefore a witness to you lest you deny God. So the he told the people, you know, you really want to serve God? And they're like, we want to serve God. And he's like, serving God at a sacrifice. We still want to serve God. If you serve God and then you go back on it, there's a curse. 
We still want to serve God. Okay, I'm going to write this down on a stone. And where does he put the stone? Right on that hill. The same hill that Abraham came to. The same hill that Moses comes to. The same hill that they come to when they actually enter the land. It gets, There's more to that hill. The area around this area being flat. Now you've all seen the picture. This would have been where the food came from that made the northern kingdom of Israel extremely wealthy. It's also the site of Morah, this hill, where Gideon camped on before he attacked the Midianites. Because you can camp an army on this hill. It's a big hill. It's bordered on the north. The view on the bottom picture is a view that you would look at if you were on the ridge of the city of Nazareth, which is exactly where Jesus kind of escaped when they tried to kill him when he first announced his ministry. The view he was looking at when they tried to kill him was that valley and that hill would have been dead set in front of him. The hill where the Israelites promised they would follow God and he's got a whole community of Israelites rejecting him as the Messiah. And you think of the contrast that must have meant because Jesus, he's part of the Trinity. He was there when these Israelites made this promise. He was there when God first talked to Abram and, and God brought Abram to this hill it gets even better. Um, on the other side of that valley, so Nazareth on the northwest corner of it, on the southwest corner of the valley, the southern side of the valley, is another little tall town called Megiddo. And the city of Megiddo, or in Hebrew, Armageddon, becomes the site of in Revelation where it says there will be a battle. And it'll be a battle for the nation of Israel that happens in that valley all around that hill where God's promises have been made to the people of this world, where a light should shine in the darkness. If I were Israel, I'd put a big lighthouse on top of that hill. And I think it'd be the coolest symbolic thing in the world. This is the light for the whole world to see. But it's also going to be where the whole world attacks in that valley, according to Revelations, where that's all going to happen. Okay, so we could have just read past the Terebinth trees of Mora. But I thought it was worth stopping and going, we need to know as Bible scholars how important the Terebeth trees of Morah really are and how important this site's going to be. So Abraham listens. He takes off. Verse 7, then the, Lord of the, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said. So this is the first time the Lord appears to a human being. Normally in Genesis so far, God has walked with human beings and talked to them directly. But in this case, God appears to Abram. He appears to Abram after Abram has taken his first step and listened to God. And now God's promises get a little more complex. To your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him and appeared to Jehovah again. And he talks directly to Abram. There's nothing overpowering noted about this. So most scholars believe it's a Christophany. It's Jesus talking to Abram because when God talks to Moses, his face lights up and people can see it, like there's a power there. Um, people fall on their face when they talk to angels, uh, when they talk to this, but at this point, we don't see that, or there's no evidence of it in the text. Abram moves by faith. God talks to him after he moves. Uh, he gives a, a vague reference to Abram's descendants. He does not mention Lot. Um, and God doesn't give a lot of details in this thing, because frankly, Abram's still got some baggage with him. Verse 8. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord called the name of the Lord. Um, he pitches his tent. Basically, Abram is called to come to Canaan, uh, but God doesn't tell him to settle, so he doesn't. He's a herd. He's a nomadic type person. Bethel would be 
In Hebrew, that means the house of God, but I think most of the people here know that because we go to Bethel. Um, but Bethel's on the south side of this valley. So if you go between Bethel and Ai, you're following a trade route path that goes straight to Jerusalem. And between Bethel and Ai are these mountains where they would shout the blessings and the curses, but we'll get to that later in Genesis. He moves south then from Mora in the hill country, and we can see here that if he pitched his tent, uh, and there he built an altar to the Lord, so that's actually the second altar that Abram built. He's spreading faith in Yahweh. So everywhere he goes, he's building these these altars to Yahweh and, and establishing in public places of worship. So the hill of Bethel would have also been a public Canaanite worship site because they put things on high places. They put idols on high on all of the high places that they could. So he's establishing Jehovah worship wherever he goes. He's like doing Bible studies and things like that. He has the scrolls with him, so they could have been reading. Here's how the world began, and this is what, where it started. Bethel takes on significance, but we'll get to that more when we get to a Bethel-like story. Um, but that's another location where there's tons of Bible stories that happen there. Verse 9, so Jabram, Abram journeyed, and he going on still towards the south. The only really place to herd your sheep, if you go south from Bethel and Ai, is a hill country of Jerusalem. So when he goes south, he would have been hanging around in the area where Jerusalem will later be founded. Um, he waits for heaven here. Uh, he stays with God. This is where he's supposed to be. In Hebrews 11.9, it says, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country. So he's a foreigner. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which had its foundations, whose builder and maker is God. In other words, Abram's not making Jerusalem as a city, but he's waiting for that city that God's going to put there. So he would have been waiting there. Uh, around Jerusalem are two valleys called the Kidron Valley and the Hinnom Valley. The high spot in the middle would have looked a lot like that picture I just showed you. There's beautiful valleys on either side of Jerusalem. They're not as big as the Jezreel Valley or the Megiddo Valley, um, but they're big enough to where you could easily bring sheep there. On one side is this kind of hill in the middle, which would be where Jerusalem later gets founded. Um, going down the Kidron and back up is where the Mount of Olives would be. And so we have, that's just an area where lots of Bible stories are going to happen later. So he leaves Canaan in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there for the famine was severe in the land. So in verse five, he's supposed to go to Canaan and he's supposed to depart and go, but he keeps going. He goes south through Canaan. Verse eight and nine, he's moved to Bethel, which is further south. And in verse 10, he goes down to Egypt. Notice he goes south, he goes south, but here we switch the word to down. Um, and throughout the Bible, we're going to see that Egypt represents not just a geographical motion for Israelites, it's also a spiritual move. So it's not just moving south again, it's actually taking a step down or backwards or negative. Um, so the Egypt will be a kind of a spiritual image for the world. Notice that God didn't talk to him. God didn't say go to Egypt. So in the same sense where he should have left uh, um, Haran, he shouldn't have left Canaan. And this is a tough thing because sometimes as you go through your life, you want to go to the word of God and say, when should I go? When should I stay? What should I do and how should I do it? And then God does stuff like this in the Bible. Well, if you're reading the part where he's supposed to leave Terah, you get this nice, yeah, God's saying, go and I'm going to go. I'm going to take that step. But then you get this stuff where you're in Canaan and it stinks and there's a bunch of idol worshipers everywhere and you don't like this place and God doesn't tell him to go to Egypt. So things are going to get worse for Abram in Egypt. 
He leaves because there's a famine, so he doesn't have faith that God's going to see him through the famine. Um, but he wasn't told to leave, and he doubts that God can provide from him, and he doubts that God can keep his promises. So we see that happens. He's going to get lured into Egypt, and Egypt's not going to go well for him. So in verse 11, it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you're a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they'll let you live. Egyptian records show they did this all the time. Egypt was famous for this. If you were a smoking hottie, they killed your husband and they took you into their harems and they had polygamy going on in Egypt at this point. Uh, So it was actually a really rational thing to think, but notice how him doubting God here turns into just doing the wrong thing when he gets to Egypt. So it's not like Egypt is welcoming him with open arms. Sarai would have been 10 years younger than Abram, which makes her about 65 years old. And you think, how does a 65-year-old look amazing? And I just say, you just need to find beautiful women that look great even as they get older. (laughs) So um, it's enough to say that Abram wasn't just saying that as a loving husband. She had to be strikingly beautiful because the first thing that happens to them is they see that she's beautiful. And they don't just take her as their own. They actually pass her along to be in the Pharaoh's um, harem. So... Notice that we don't see that God's talking to Abram while he's in Egypt. Things are just going to get worse and worse, but God's still working here. Please say, verse 13, please say you're my sister, that it might be well with you for my sake, that I might live because of you. So they don't kill you if you're somebody's protector and guardian. They just give you a dowry or they they pay you off so they can take this woman out of your household. So Abram in the middle of following God quickly becomes a liar and he starts to sin. Now he's worrying and it's going to cost him because he's gone down this path where he doesn't trust God. One of the things they say at the counseling class at Grant's Bible College, they say there's three types of people that need counseling. There's people that worry, which means they have their eyes on the world and they're looking at what happens around them. There's people that are mad and bitter and that's because they have their eyes on other people and people are sinners and they let you down. And then there's people that are depressed, which have their eyes on themselves. The only alternative to all three of those, having your eyes on the world, having your eyes on others, or having eyes on yourself, the only alternative to any of those is to put your eyes on God. And if you put your eyes on God, suddenly things like worry, anger, and depression evaporate. And that is actually how they train counselors in an entire Christian denomination. Like you have to take those people, hear what they have to say, and point them back to God because that's where the healing comes from. So we're starting to see a pattern. Even those people God works with are not perfect. The Bible never makes the claim that people of faith are perfect. In fact, the only claim that gets made around perfection is around Jesus Christ. But even Abram's just totally in the world at this point. He's sinning. He's uh, manipulating. uh, And God's still going to work for us. And when we take our eyes off God and what he's sacrificed for us, we get into these kinds of situations. God then is going to intervene here and he's going to take Abram and send him back to Canaan. And if Abram's not going to listen, God's going to get more forceful. So lesson from that, sometimes when you don't obey God, when you think you should have obeyed God, things actually get worse for you and get more uncomfortable because God has a plan for your life. And and you've said, I want to work with you, God. So he's going to help you make those decisions and get through them. Verse 14, so it was. 
when Abram came into Egypt, that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. And the princes of Pharaoh saw, also saw her and commanded her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. The book of Esther shows that for these kinds of situations that women were prepared for 30 days, if you were going to marry a king or a pharaoh, you were prepared for 30 days. Here's how you do the etiquette. Here's You bow when you're supposed to bow. You leave when you're supposed to leave. Here's things you should know about the wedding night, all those kinds of things. Uh, and this this plan looks pretty good from a worldly sense because Abram's getting really wealthy. You know, he gets a lot of things handed to him. But in exchange for animals and goats, he just lost his wife. And this is a horrible situation. So not only did he go to Egypt because he was worried, then he got to Egypt and he had this plan so that he wouldn't get killed. But that plan turned into him really losing. And if, if you're in love with somebody, it doesn't matter how many sheep you have. Abram just lost everything. He lost his wife that he's been married to for most of his life. And she's being handed over to another man. And you'd think this, Abram's just got to think this is horrible. The only solution when the Pharaoh takes your wife is death or God's intervention. And that's what's going to happen next. So in verse 17, oh, and all these gifts, you know, he's given him a workforce. He's given him transportation. Some people believe this is where Haggai, the servant, who's going to come into play later. She's one of Pharaoh's gifts into Abram's family. And she'll be a problem later. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with the great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. God's promise is to make a great nation. And again, Satan's attacking that promise. Because if that promise is going to come through Shem's line, and Abram in that line is one of the only ones left, uh, and God's made this promise to Abram, Satan's going right at that. By going after Sarai, by going after the wife, God's actually attacking the whole family and the whole plan. And he's attacking God. So we stumble, we get up, and God helps us here. Verse 16, Pharaoh calls Abram and said, why did you do this? What have you done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? First of all, how did Pharaoh even find out? Like, did he have magicians that came and told him? Did he have, did somebody report on Abram? So I don't, it doesn't say how Pharaoh found out. It just kind of shows us that Abram, this guy who's supposed to be following God, has lost the respect not only of his family, because his family's broken up, but he's actually lost the respect of the people of the world too. If you're a liar, even non-believers think, wow, how's this, what kind of witness does this guy have? I don't want to be like that because their ethics are poor right there. So he's actually lost the respect of Egypt here. How embarrassing. How many times do we see Christians that act in sin and hurt the testimony of God before other people? And how many times do we see that in the church and how tragic that is? Verse 19, what did you say? She's my, why did you say she's my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here's your wife, take her and go away. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife. And this is nice. Pharaoh sends him with everything he has. This is actually a mirror of when the Israelites, there's plagues that come to Egypt with Moses. And then the Israelites are so frustrated with him, they say, go away, get out of here. And they actually let him take everything with them. So once a, this is going to happen again, but it really mirrors that situation where they get to take all this stuff. And I think it's pretty kind of the Pharaoh to do that, which says the wealth of Egypt must have been extensive. Um, and we don't know which plagues were brought. I wish they would have said which plagues, because in my imagination, I think they're probably similar to the plagues that came with Moses later, because it would just be nice symmetry in the Bible. Um, but anyways, 
כיף. I think I'm missing something. Or not. Sorry. Did you not print chapter 13? Okay. We're going to wrap up early then tonight. <laughs> we'll wrap up with a few thoughts about faith. So he's kicking them out, and when we come back, we get to chapter 13, and it starts with Abram heading back into Israel. When he gets back to Israel, God talks to him again, or when he gets back to Canaan. So this idea that God, when we go on these detours or we stray from our faith, and then people say, where's God, and why is he not talking to me? Sometimes God's still at work. He's bringing plagues on Egypt. God's still working here, but he's not talking to Abram. And that silence that we get from God sometimes can be, and it's not always the case, but in this case, God's choosing to not talk to Abram while he's outside of Canaan. He talks to Abram when Abram obeys him, because then they're in conversation. But when Abram's doing his own thing, and he's off on his own plan, and he's picking his own path, and he's got an agenda for success in his life, God's like, all right, I'm, you know, we're not in conversation anymore, because you're not working with me. And I think that's kind of a convicting thing for me, I think, is that in the times when the life when I feel like God's talking to me is when I'm closest to obeying what he's called me to do. And it's not hard. The Bible doesn't make us wonder what we're called to do. We put it on our wall. We're supposed to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. We're supposed to tell our faith in Jesus Christ to all nations. We're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves and love God more than anything else. So it's not hard to know what we're supposed to do to be in God's will. The hard part is actually doing it and not and trusting that God will then bless us and that we can trust him in that. I also think it's cool when it comes to faith that God talks to Abram even when he imperfectly follows God. Sometimes we don't know exactly, I think sometimes we hesitate on following God because we don't know exactly how to do it. But notice that God didn't tell, he just told Abram, get out of your country. He didn't even tell him what direction to get out of his country. He just said, get out. And it's almost like God knows us well enough to know that what we're gonna do when we make decisions but he wants us to make decisions. And God actually blesses Abraham, not because Abraham's perfect, but because Abraham's giving it a good scout's effort. And I think that's something that when you talk to people that come from really legalistic traditions, that they're like, well, I didn't know exactly what to do or exactly how to do it. And it's like, look, God's smarter than you. He knows you're not perfect, but he wants you to try. And that trying is more important than getting it right. And because God will make it right. And he does with Abraham by getting him booted out of Egypt. Faith, then, is about believing and walking in the promises of God, even if we don't know where we're going. There's this beautiful tradition, and I'm not saying that this is the, you know, the be-all and end-all, but the Catholic Church for hundreds of years has had a tradition where they build labyrinths, and those labyrinths are meant to pray, and they're these they're little mazes on the floor. They put them in the tile work of Notre Dame, and they've got gardens here in Minnesota that have labyrinth gardens. So it's a long-standing tradition with the Catholic Church. The whole idea is you start at the beginning of the labyrinth and you just pray to the Lord. And when you come to a right turn, you just follow the right turn and you don't question. You just go the way that the labyrinth takes you. And what happens is it's so confusing, your brain can't keep track of which end is up. And But you just learn to just follow God. You go left when it goes left, you go right when it goes light, you listen to the still small voice and you just pray as you go through this labyrinth. And at some point you come out on the other end, but you have no idea how you got there. And I think faith is like that sometimes. Being an old guy, 
I've seen so many times that when I make plans, they don't work. When you just follow God and you go life right when he says to go right and left when he says to go right, suddenly you find yourself on the other end and you're like, dang, I got to be a professor. How did that happen? But you just follow God with each step and you follow those opportunities that he opens. Um, number three is to trust God and trust what he says. This idea that we worry and we plan, I think those are the two things. We either make our plans or we worry a lot. And both of those are a kind of form of sin. They're not just following the Lord and doing what he says to do. That says you should plan your wedding, Alyssa. You know that, but, you know. <laughs> um, so there's, there's planning and then there's thinking that you know how to run your life. And the reality is we don't. Abram fails his first test. God still loves him. God still wants to work with him. God later is going to call Abram his friend. And what a beautiful thing to have God say, you're my friend. It doesn't matter what your failings are or where you screw up or what you do that bugs me or doesn't bug me because this had to bug God a little bit. God still says, he's my friend. This is a guy who wanted to follow me and he gave it his scout's effort, so to speak. And God continues to test Abram and he's going to develop him. And remember at the end of the day, Abram's going to be so ready to follow God that when God says, I need you to give your son as a sacrifice, Abram says, okay, and starts hiking up the hill. Like, it's one of those things where Abram's just learned, I don't need to figure this out. I just need to follow what the Lord's telling me. And it would be nice if God appeared to us and told us, but we have the word of God to tell us what to do and how to behave. And I think that's one of those things where we can make the excuse that God doesn't talk to us directly, but we can only make that excuse if we're not in the word and we're not studying what it says which is kind of there. So if you could join me in a word of prayer, we'll talk about it and we can talk about the Ur of the Chaldeans, right, if you want to. Dear Lord and King, I just thank you so much. So many parts of the world, you can get killed for doing what we're doing tonight. Lord, your word is holy. It is good for reproof and testing. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. But Lord, it's your word. And you pass these scrolls we're reading down through Adam and Noah and Seth and Abram and all the way to Moses. And Lord, we're reading the words that Moses put together in our language. And what an amazing gift that is. We don't have to wonder what your will is and what your intentions are, Lord. We can see that you built Israel to be a light unto the world, to bless all nations. And so that the word of God would be sustained and maintained. We thank those generations of Jewish people that kept your word of God alive and accurate for so many generations. Lord, we thank you for the faithfulness of Abram. Thank you that he just took a step. He just left and he delayed in leaving and he brought Lot with him and he kept going when he should have stopped. And Lord, he made so many mistakes, but that you call him as your friend. We trust in the same promise, Lord. We want nothing more than to die and go to heaven and have you greet us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. We just want to serve you. And everybody that's here tonight, Lord, we're here because we want to sacrifice an evening of our life to study your word. And I just thank you for the faithfulness of brothers and sisters that are committed to that. But Lord, there's so few of us and there's so many people out there that worry and they're angry and they're depressed and they're hurt. And what they really need is to come before your throne, study what you have to say to them and watch those things just evaporate, Lord. They need to trust in you and put their eyes on you. So Lord, help us to go out this week and bless the people in our lives. Help us to be encouragers. Help the words that come out of our mouth to be those that add life to everyone we know, uh, to lift them up, to build them up, to have grace in their mistakes in the same way you had grace for Abram and the same way you have grace for us, Lord. We have all fallen short of your glory and what you intended for us. But today, this week, help us to 
come back to where you want us to be, to follow your promises, to live in your truth. And Lord, you promise you're going to bless us when you do that. And you blessed Paul and Peter and Stephen, and they got martyred. But they did it in joy, and they knew that they were, gonna, they were in your will. So Lord, it doesn't matter where your blessing takes us, Lord. We just want to be in your grace. But that's so much more important than our own comfort, what we want and what we want to do. So may this word stick with us and, and sink into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.